Welcome back to the Falklands War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 13. The British were preparing to land their amphibious force on the northwestern tip of the East Falklands at a place called San Carlos. I won't go into the long drawn-out debate that took place between commanders over alternatives because it's moot considering what happened next. However, as you're going to hear, because they'd not managed to take control of the air war, some of the landing and support vessels were going to suffer the consequences. By the 15th of May, civilians aboard the ships, including the press, were handed the Declaration of Active Service, placing them under direct military discipline. Then on the 18th of May, the amphibious force lined up with aircraft carrier Hermes and Brigadier Thompson was told that the missiles from Rear Admiral Woodward's ships would provide air cover. Fortunately for the British, on that day, the container ship Atlantic Conveyor had arrived, carrying 12 Harrier aircraft. These were now flown to the carriers. Four were RAF GR3 ground attack aircraft, while the others were from the hastily constituted 809 Naval Sea Harrier Squadron. They were flown by pilots from all over the world. Hugh Slade from Australia, Bill Covington from Arizona, USA, and Al Craig from Germany, amongst others. They'd also brought 24 much-needed maintenance crew. On the 19th of May, four more GR3s landed, having flown in a remarkable single-seat air-fueled flight from Britain via Ascension Island. There were now 35 Harriers on call above the Falklands. They would all be needed, as you'll hear. Woodward had lined up all the frigates he could muster, which were seven, and these would provide naval gunfire support and air defence for the landing force during their last hours at sea and the first hours on land. The Type 22s, HMS Broadsword and Brilliant, were vital, given they were armed with the Seawolf missiles. Woodward was reminded by Brilliant's Captain Coward that the missiles were only effective if the ships were tightly packed in what was known as the shoebox formation, and that's how they ended up sailing. But it was the Canberra that was worrying Brigadier Thompson and other commanders. It was unthinkable to send the entire brigade to San Carlos aboard a single ocean liner, given that the British did not control the air. The problem was the weather. At this point, a heavy swell was running in the southern Atlantic, so they could not cross-deck the troops to the other ships, and doing so in a heavy swell involving at least 1,800 men was inconceivable. The first suggestion was send the ships to South Georgia to do it there, but this would have delayed the landings. Some were suggesting it be done on a one-on-one basis on the so-called jack-stay method, which would have taken at least 24 hours, and that was on a good day. As if by a miracle, the wind dropped and the swell flattened out, and now they could move the men using the LCU landing craft, which carried 100 at a time. Long lines of marines with their arms and equipment began moving through the liner's dining rooms, then leapt aboard the landing craft. One man missed and hit the sea. He was pulled out before being crushed. Woodward was then handed a message from the war cabinet informing him he could give the commander of brigade the order to land on the Falklands at his discretion. There was some debate between Woodward and Thompson about the exact hour, as the army preferred approaching the coast under cover of darkness. They split the difference and brought the landing on the 21st of May forward by six hours. Military units were then given their landing plans. Captain Peter Babington of 42 Commander K Company told his men to go in hard and shoot the officers first. Major Mike Norman, who you remember commanded the Stanley Garrison when the Argentinians invaded, repeated this and briefed J Company of 42 Commando to pick their targets and aim for the man who was waving his arms around. When an SAS party had raided Pebble Island on May 15th, they had spent 45 minutes sabotaging aircraft before a group of Argentinians arrived, including a man 
who in their words waved his arms around. The SAS promptly shot him and the others ran away. So the British hoped that most of the Argentinian troops would do likewise. It wasn't going to be so simple as they'd discover shortly. On the 19th of May, the troops were told terrible news that 22 men had died, 18 of them members of the SAS squad involved in Pebble Island, when the helicopter heading to the Hermes ploughed into the ocean after apparently hitting an albatross. It was the single worst incident to befall that regiment since 1945. Final briefings were held and the men seized what sleep they could on cabin floors and crates, and before dawn on the 21st of May they had breakfast. The food on the ships improved dramatically, with steak on the menu for breakfast, lunch and tea, and that was on the Canberra. That evening, on the same ship, Lieutenant Colonel Vaux addressed 42 Commander, warning that their landing would be unlike any other fighting they had known. Most had experience of urban warfare, fighting the IRA in Northern Ireland. In the urban fighting, casualties had taken preference. Here, they would not. Anyone wounded had to be left where they lay. Stopping to pick them up would slow the advance. It was like D-Day all over again. Across on the HMS Fearless, Lieutenant Colonel Malcolm Hunt said pretty much the same, and may your God go with you. A parallel gathering had been held by a small number of senior officers on HMS Fearless a little earlier, including members of the planners known as R Group. Julian Thompson walked in holding a piece of paper bearing the single code word PALPAS, a final note that the landings were good to go. The British plan for the Falkland Islands D-Day of the 21st of May 1982 was simple enough, but landing 3,000 men and thousands of tons of cargo by night from a fleet of 11 ships is no simple matter. 40 commander of two para were first ashore, landing on Blue Beach 1 and Blue Beach 2, either side of the San Carlos settlement. Then 45 commander would land on Red Beach 1 and Ajax Bay, with three para landing last at Green Beach, east of the port of San Carlos. Everything would begin at 0100 hours 30 local time, and all units had to achieve their objectives by first light six hours later. They were worried about the Argentinian Air Force, and for good reason. But first, they planned a bit of trickery and diversion. Using what was hoped to be a clear window, the fleet would sail southwest towards Stanley, hoping that the Argentinians would believe the main landings were going to take place at the main port. Instead, there were clouds, wind and rain throughout that period, by the time the fleet turned into Falkland Sound towards its true objective of San Carlos Basin, the weather cleared, revealing where they were heading. By now, the commanders were hoping for cloud cover, but it was brilliantly clear on the morning of the 21st. A night sky with a myriad of stars and the outline of the shore plainly visible. The second thing that went wrong was that an attempt by the special boat service to make a capture of a group of Argentinians who were seen on the headland failed. That area dominated the north entrance to San Carlos Bay, known as Fanning Head. The Argentinians were not supposed to be there, as the SBS had kept it under surveillance for days. But literally, on the eve of the landings, a four-man patrol sent from the frigate Brilliant had made a final check just in case. As they paddled towards Fanning Head, they saw the lights on the headland, and in the quiet, they heard Spanish voices. The four-man patrol turned around and paddled back to the ship furiously. The SBS and the SAS were given the task of eliminating the Argentinians before any landing could take place. 32 men were going to be choppered to the shore together with Marine Captain Roderick Bell, who was fluent in Spanish. He was the son of a UN official and had lived in Costa Rica, where he had become fluent in the language. The SAS team was also equipped with a superb new American 60mm lightweight mortar. They wanted to overcome the Argentinian soldiers at Fanning Head, believed to be around 20. 
A Wessex 3 helicopter from Antrim swept Fanning Head using a thermal imager and they spotted the Argentinians. By 11pm on the 20th, the SPS and SAS took off from a destroyer heading for the landing zone within striking distance of Fanning Head. Both sets of specialist troops were dressed in the odd combination of mixed webbing, they sported longer hair, and the SAS used American automatic weapons. They dropped out of the helicopters into the dark, their blackened faces under balaclavas, and they were carrying a formidable firepower of 12 GP machine guns. It was a six-mile march to Fanning Head, led by an NCO who carried a thermal imager. There were no hitches until they reached a ridge about 700 yards from the enemy position. A naval gunfire officer then called down salvos from the HMS Antrim while the SPS opened fire with machine guns. The Argentinians abandoned their 106mm recoilless rifle and ran for cover. Then Bell and an SPS volunteer crawled down the hill, dragging their loud hailer and batteries until they were 200 yards from the enemy position. Captain Bell began calling them in Spanish to surrender, but the wind was blowing so hard his message was blown away. The rest of the special forces realized that a counterattack was brewing and opened fire again from the ridge over Bell's head as he lay prone and still. The Argentinians returned fire. Eventually both sides stopped and waited for dawn when six Argentinians surrendered. Three others were lying wounded and attended to by the British, but the rest of the outpost had retreated. These were the members of the 12th and 25th regiments based at Darwin and Goose Green. These 20 men had been left without food for three days at their lonely Fanning Head outpost and had taken to shooting sheep for a meal. One had lost toes from frostbite. Others were wearing fragments of British equipment looted from the Royal Marines base at Moody Brook. Despite the seeming success, SPS and SAS officers were unhappy. They said it was the last time they tried to secure a military objective by taking the enemy alive because most had got away and the British would pay for that. It was to the alarming sound of gunfire that the landing force prepared to embark and a series of accidents now unfolded. First, 40 commando were unable to leave HMS Fearless in their landing craft because the pump filling the embarkation dock inside broke down. Fearless Captain Jeremy Larkin decided he'd open the lock and let the sea flood in, which could have swamped the landing craft, but they all survived. Then men of 2 para found they couldn't clamber off HMS Norland, which had no dock at all. They were forced to climb into the LCUs. One man plunged off the lines and hit the landing craft so hard he broke his pelvis. Eventually, when two para did set off, they sailed in the wrong direction until fetched back by our old friend Major Southby Taylor. He had suggested San Carlos from the start as the landing beach and was tasked with guiding each landing craft to the beach. 40 Commander and two para were supposed to link up and then cross what's known as the line of departure together. That's the equivalent of the Army's start line, when an assault is deemed to have begun. They were to land either side of the San Carlos settlement. By now, they were an hour late, so a 40 commander forged ahead. They didn't want to be caught in a crossfire if the Argentinians at San Carlos fought back. They didn't, but 40 had other problems. The landing site was actually a beach with overhanging rocks, so the drivers of the light tanks at the front of the landing craft couldn't disembark. The troops had to squeeze past the tanks in the dark, then wade through deep water to the beach. The light tanks were moved to an adjacent beach and eventually they also made it ashore. So much for the intelligence gathering and research. Southby Taylor must have winced when he heard about the overhanging rocks. 40 Commander duly liberated the San Carlos settlement and Lieutenant Colonel Hunt found 31 kelpers there, most of whom had fled from Port Stanley. C Company Commander Annie Pillar raised the Union Jack at first light 
a ceremony that was reportedly welcomed in a low-key manner by the Kelpers. The islanders seemed strangely unimpressed. Hunt thought and said that the settlement manager welcome was not cool exactly, but muted. The Argentinians had fled in haste, leaving half-eaten meals, as well as regimental swords and medals they'd confiscated from the Royal Marines three months earlier. Meanwhile, two para had made its inelegant way ashore, arriving at Blue Beach too. Both 45 Commander and 3 para experienced difficulties climbing into their landing crafts as well. 45 Commander finally went ashore, followed last of all by 3 para. By now it was broad daylight and everyone had made it alive and mostly unhurt so far. 3 para did want to follow up the retreating Argentinians but had to help secure the beach. The only Argentinian force standing in the way of the landing was 1st Lieutenant Esteban's Eagle Detachment, which had retreated from Fanning Head as well as San Carlos. 2nd Lieutenant Roberto Reyes, 4 NCOs and 15 conscripts were manning Fanning Head when the party of SBS men had attacked them the previous night. When the shooting started, Lieutenant Esteban heard what was going on from San Carlos five miles away, but he didn't pick up the small arms fire, just the ship's salvo. For three hours, he tried to radio 2nd Lieutenant Reyes and hoped that a messenger would arrive with news of what was going on. After dawn, he sent a lookout with binoculars to the high ground behind the settlement. At first, the mist was too thick, but then the lookout was amazed to see the shape of a huge white liner, the Canberra. It was steaming into San Carlos's water three miles away, and he could also now see the landing craft. Esteban reported this to Goose Green, requesting an air attack then withdrew his force of 42 men from the settlement to a position in open ground to the east, saying later he was aware that the civilians were in the line of fire. The British saw his retreat, but they didn't get a message through to the helicopters of the task force. In the firm belief that everything had been secured, a Sea King lifting rapier missiles took off four Port San Carlos accompanied by a light gazelle chopper armed with rockets and a machine gun. Esteban, speaking later, explained that he spotted these choppers and the underslung load on the Sea King. He was amazed as they flew straight towards his heavily armed men, and he ordered them to open fire as the choppers rounded Cameron's Point near San Carlos. The choppers were at low level and sitting ducks. The Sea King jettisoned its load and swung away, but the gazelle was hit by at least six rounds, and they were less than 70 meters away. Royal Marine Pilot Sergeant Andy Evans was critically wounded, but managed to ditch the chopper into the sea, it's what happened next that caused much bitterness. Esteban said the conscripts had not been trained in the Geneva Convention, and for 15 minutes they machine-gunned Evans and his crewman, Sergeant Ed Candlish. But they missed. Eventually, Candlish managed to drag Evans onto the shore when the firing stopped, but the pilot died in his arms. Esteban explained later that the conscripts had only 40 days of service, and they stopped firing when the kelpers put a boat into the water to help the air crew who had made it to the beach anyway. The Argentinians moved position to higher ground while three para and other British units fired on them from the distance, but Esteban's unit managed to escape injury. As Candlish watched in horror, two more helicopters approached at low level. It was another Sea King with a gazelle as support. The gunship was a mere 40 meters away when the Argentinians opened fire once more, and this time the two crew had no chance. It crashed less than 10 meters from Esteban, and he saw immediately that both of the crew had been crushed and died instantly. There was no fire, he said, despite British journalists reporting later that it had burned. The Sea King swung away. Then a third gazelle approached, clearly trying to help the crew of the crashed chopper, 
but the withering Argentinian fire drove it away. A little later, Surgeon Commander Rick Jolly on Canberra took off in a Wessex helicopter. They had heard that the first gazelle had been shot down, and then the second. I ran up, and there were the two aircrew, both dead, he said later. Their chests soaked in blood, and it was obvious they'd been hit in the air by machine gun fire. Medical officers had been forbidden to take bodies back to the task force, but Jolly ignored these orders. He loaded both the crew into the Wessex, saying that it was partly out of respect for the dead, and also that he wanted to deliver a warning. I think that some of those on board felt a bit distant, he said about the Canberra. We're not going to be hit. Well, that's what some people were saying. And then those dead guys came in. It was at that point that my colleagues realized we were in a shooting war. Esteban spoke to journalist Martin Middlebrook after the war, who said his men had reacted far better to the helicopters than he had hoped. He thought they'd be shock-paralyzed, as he put it, like facing a tank. But the Argentinians stood and fought, particularly when he recognized that the British unit firing on him were paratroopers. When I saw those Red Berets standing, I didn't think I would survive. But after the fight with the helicopters and much watching the cautious manner in which the British troops moved, I became much more sure of myself and started to think I would survive. Esteban withdrew his party eastwards into the interior, pursued by small arms fire and mortars. They escaped injury all the way back to Douglas Settlement, 18 miles away, which took four days of trekking. However, 2nd Lieutenant Roberto Reyes did not cover himself in as much glory as he departed. Two weeks earlier, he had pistol-whipped the San Carlos settlement manager. Then, he left a trail of destruction as he retreated, shooting livestock and robbing islanders at gunpoint as he fled. Yet, both Esteban and Reyes were decorated for their actions that day, although their enemy believed only one really deserved the accolade. These actions on Fanning Head and on the hillside above San Carlos were the only clashes of the day between the opposing ground forces. And yet, in one of the most important days of the war, the 62 men of Eagle Detachment were the only Argentine participants facing the 3,000 British troops landing at San Carlos. Nine Argentinians were now prisoners of war, three were wounded, and the Gazelle crew were the only British fatalities in what was called the ground action of D-Day. With the coastline secure, the assault ships Canberra, Norland and accompanying vessels moved inwards from Falkland Sound to take up their anchorage positions in the heart of San Carlos water. The British had been lucky so far and succeeded in overcoming the greatest single hurdle of the Falklands campaign. Three Commander Brigade had made it ashore and this was clearly a feat of combined operations. They had proved that a small fleet could land an amphibious force on a hostile coast 8,000 miles from home. But could they stay there? 27 minutes later, HMS Canberra received its first air raid red alert of the morning. What happened next is for next episode. The music theme for this series is a composition by Kevin McLeod called Devastation and Revenge. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. It helps increase the visibility. Or if you'd like to contact me, you can email me through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.